0: Hopefully you heard that. I couldn't if I wanted to. Whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then whether I come and see you or only hear about you in my ab- absence, I will know that you stand firm in one spirit, contending as one man for the faith of the gospel. Without being frightened in any way, By those who oppose you, this is the sign to them that they will be destroyed, but that you will be saved and that by God. For it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ not only to believe on him, but also to suffer for him. Since you are going through the same struggles you saw I had and now hear that I still have.
1: Thank you, brother. Yeah, that's fine. I want to invite you to join me there in that passage in Philippians chapter 1 as we continue our study of this book. I don't know if you have ever had the experience of losing your ID, but it, it is a frustrating and uh, it can be a kind of a scary experience, especially if you're traveling internationally and you lose your passport. Unfortunately, I've never experienced that, but I've heard that it's a hassle uh, because that little document there uh, says so much about you—not necessarily about who you are as a person—but it identifies you to the people that need to know. A- and what Paul is going to talk about here, he's going to talk about citizenship and our identification as sorts. Our driver's license or our passports identify us as citizens of the state of Michigan, of, of citizens of the United States of America, but what Paul is going to say as far as our spiritual passport goes is that our lives are the ones, our life is, is, is that identification. It shows that we're citizens of a different kingdom, of a heavenly kingdom. We don't, we don't have a document, we don't have a photo ID, but what we do have is our lives that show that we're citizens as a part of the kingdom of God. If you found your place there, uh, before we dive into the text, I, haven't, I had a note here I meant to say right when I first got up, uh, if, if you're if you're newer here uh, and newish to Brown Corners, uh, at 10 o'clock we encourage you to hang around over on the other hallway there on the other side of the building in the activity room. We have just kind of an informal gathering to talk a little bit about who we are at Brown Corners and answer some of your questions. We're going to have some snacks. So I just want to uh, put that out there and um, we're going to be doing it the next few weeks. So if you want to come the whole time or just one or two of the weeks you're more than welcome to we'd love to get to know you a little bit better the apostle paul here has called these believers to live not as worldly citizens but as worthy citizens and and this is an important transition in the book verse 27 uh, most scholars say that this is this is Paul moving on to the next section, his sort of the, the, the meat of the book, if you will, from verse 27 to chapter 2 verse 18. And, and so he begins by saying just one thing. Now if, if you've ever if you're familiar with Paul, you kind of can chuckle a little bit because it's sort of like it's sort of like maybe if you're watching the presidential debates and stuff and and, and the, the moderator says, "You've got one minute to respond, and they're all like, <laughs> one minute, right? Paul's readers would have heard that, just one thing, and they'd have been like, yeah, Paul, you're not just going to say one more thing. There's like three chapters left. You're, you're, you've, you've got a lot to say. But what Paul is really trying to say and what the, the original language emphasizes is that, that what I'm about to say is really important. If you're going to hear anything, hear this. The, the, the original language puts a tremendous force on the introduction to that sentence. Just one thing as citizens of heaven, live your life worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So if you're taking notes, that first line is that we have a call to the call of gospel worthy citizens. The call of gospel worthy citizens. As citizens of heaven, live your lives worthy of the gospel of Christ. He says here, no matter what, whatever takes place, whatever happens, no matter the circumstances, this is to be your mode of existence. None of them were exempt from living gospel-worthy lives based on how busy they were, or how wealthy they were, or how hard their lives were, how, what kind of persecution they were facing. This was their calling, and it is ours as well, that that verb in, in the original language that's translated uh, live as citizens, it's, it, all, of our, all of our translations render it just a little bit differently. But, but the word was really tied into the, the political realm. If you remember from the first week, we said that Philippi was a strategic and important city in the Roman Empire. In fact, they made Philippi to sort of model, it was sort of seen as a little Rome. And and the citizens of Philippi were really proud of their heritage. They were proud of their citizenship in Philippi. And Paul is saying to them, listen, I get that that your city is important. I get that you're proud of your heritage. And it's very clear from where you live that you are Roman citizens. But make it clear from how you live that you're heavenly citizens. Uh, Our accents may may define where we're from in, in this country, what, what part of the nation we're from. I never knew that that I had an accent until I married someone from another part of the country. And I, I I was in Southern California. In fact, even now when we go back, I remember my niece saying to me, Uncle Jay, why don't you why don't you why don't you say the G at, at end of any words? You say going and Eaten and coming, like there's a G at the end, Uncle Jeremiah. I'm like, oh yeah, and and I was, I told my wife, I would just listened to an interview on the internet the other day, and I was like, they're saying they're G's at the end of the words. It's really weird. I, I didn't know I had an accent, but you, you can often define or understand where somebody comes from by the by the, the their tone of voice, their inflection. Sometimes it's really obvious if you have a good southern drawl. And Paul is saying, listen, listen. You, it, it's clear from where you live that you're Roman citizens. But I want by the way that you live to make it clear that you're heavenly citizens. Or to put it this another way, one writer says, live in the Roman colony of Philippi as worthy citizens of your heavenly homeland. Paul doesn't tell them to stop be being Philippians. He doesn't tell them to, to Go away somewhere, find a monastery in the middle of the desert and get away from everybody. No, he says, you be citizens right where you are, but live as those who are part of your heavenly homeland. He's going to return to this subject in chapter 3, verse 20, when he says, Our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly wait for a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ. This takes a balance, a reminder constantly that we are here, we're planted on this earth. In a particular location, in a particular place, but we also have a have a heavenly homeland, and to live as as uh, one writer has put it, to to live between between two worlds, is the, the trick. If if you go far too off one way, you're you're not connected to Earth. If you're constantly focused on our heavenly homeland, and if you're too tied into earth, and I think we see this problem more often, we, we become addicted to the comforts and the way of life, and, and, and sooner or later, if, if we're not careful, we don't look any, any different than, the, than those around us who don't know Jesus. And he says, listen, I want you to live in a way that you could be identified, that people could pick you out as heavenly citizens. I wonder if we asked ourselves that this morning, if people knew where we were from. I'm not talking about Clare County. I'm I'm talking about our heavenly citizenship by the way that we talk, by the things that we do, by the the one whose whose life we proclaim to, to be saved by. Do we make him known through our words and actions in the world around us? He says, live worthy of this. Worthy of the gospel. He says, whether I come and see you or I'm absent. Sort of like uh, when the teacher in the classroom walks walks out of the room. What what, what happens? What what are the kids doing? What is that teacher going to come back and find? I remember what it was like when I was when I was a kid, and, and you know, so often you're just like throwing off the restraints. Hey, forget it. You know, we're not we're not doing this work. we're we're, we're having fun, we're goofing off. And Paul says, whether I'm there or not. So the question is, how do we behave when the teacher's out of the room? Paul says, live worthy of the gospel. The gospel was everything to Paul. Because the gospel brought everything back to Jesus. We said that the first week, and we're going to continue to see it, especially here in chapter 2. That that everything that Paul did was was about Jesus. Jesus. He knew that, that spiritually speaking, he had been brought into the life of Christ, and his life was enveloped by Jesus. And so, he says, I want want to live in a way that's worthy of the gospel, in in the way that's worthy of what Jesus has done through his death, burial, and resurrection. I I, I want to measure up. I want to be be godly. That's this idea of godliness. Godliness. In fact, I love how he puts it in Titus 2.10 when he tells us to adorn the doctrine of God our Savior, to to wear the the gospel like a cloak, that everywhere we go we are constantly aware that I'm a sinner in need of a great Savior, and Jesus is that Savior who died for me and is risen again, and and that's sort of my all-encompassing reality that I'm alert to that, that I'm aware of that. You know, it's, uh, deer hunting season is upon us. You bow hunters have already been in the woods for a while. Gun hunters will be out here in a couple of days. And it's amazing, it's amazing how a man who cannot hear his wife ask him to do dishes from about 12 feet away can hear a twig snap at 300 yards. It's amazing how your hearing changes in the deer blind. It's just tuned in. You're locked in. You're aware of your surroundings. You're alert to everything that's going on in that woods. You know right where that squirrel is. and right You know the difference between the sound of, of, a, of a raccoon walking through the woods and the sound of, of, a, of, a, of, a, of a squirrel scurrying along or a, a, a bird landing in some leaves. You, you know... The difference, you're aware and tuned in and alert. Well, that's the, the idea here, is that everywhere we go, we need to be tuned in to the gospel, to this awareness that, that Jesus has taken our sins upon him. That is, that, that means that whatever guilt or shame you might feel today, that's not of Jesus, because He's taken that from you. I mean, maybe, maybe you've sinned today and you need to confess that before him. But that forgiveness is there, ready right, to wash that sin away. And, and the fact that he has, has given you life through his life. The, the, the gospel is to be an ever-present daily awareness. Being adorned with that, Paul told Titus, is the way that we're to live. You see, all, one, one writer says this, all of Paul's imperatives are subsumed under just one thing, the gospel of Christ. Paul does not impose a long list of rules. He presents the person of Christ, the good news of Christ, the story of Christ, is the rule for the community of believers. If you know that, and if you pay attention carefully to the New Testament, you'll see that it's not a rule book. It's a Jesus book. And when we love Jesus, there's a certain way to live. But he doesn't lead with the rules. He doesn't lead with the how-to. He leads with Jesus all the time. That's the call of gospel-worthy citizens. But the next thing he goes into is a description of gospel-worthy citizens. The description of gospel-worthy citizens. He's going to tell us here what what this looks like. Specifically, what he wants to see in their lives there in Philippi. And the first one is that they be united around the gospel. That they be united around the gospel. Verse 27, he says, Then whether I come and see you or an absent, I will hear that you are standing firm in one spirit, in one accord, contending together for the faith of the gospel. This This idea here is that they're standing firm in the gospel as a united front. As a united front. That they're not playing tug-of-war with each other. But they're standing with arms locked, moving forward, united for the cause of the gospel. He says in one accord, literally that means in one soul He's talking about their affections, their moral energies. That It's not just a unity on paper, but that your hearts are into it. He points to what we feel about things and how we react to them. What we consider valuable and what we're passionate about. And he says, listen, I want you to have a oneness here. A gospel-centered oneness of emotion and ambition and passion. He says, secondly... That they need to be contending together for the gospel. Contending together for the gospel. Not just united around the gospel, but contending together for the gospel. That, 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 that word there means to be struggling alongside, to be helping one another. I, 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 being that it's deer season, this just came to mind, but I, I, was, I was picturing my, uh, last. Last year, my oldest son wanted to, to go out late doe hunting. And he said, Dad, you want to come sit in the blind with me? And I said, sure. I just I love, I love being out there with the boys. And, and uh, we were on the, the back side of this property that he'd been allowed to hunt on. And he shot a nice doe, and it took off and got down into a swamp. And we finally found it. And, and we, it was just the two of us. It was starting to get dark out and we didn't we didn't have a four-wheeler there's no cell reception or anything to try to call somebody to help us so we're just like you know what let's just do this thing and it was a it was a big dough even after we gutted the thing it was just heavy and and so we were trying to haul this thing out of a swamp and then by the time we got to the trail we realized like we still have a long way to go we recognized that we we needed to do this together and it was a battle and it wasn't like we didn't find like a really nice like a good way to carry this thing, and so we looked goofy, and, and we were a mess, and we were tired and exhausted, but we were contending together to get this dough out of the woods, and we made it. Neither one of us, I don't think, could have gotten that thing out of there on our own, at least not in a reasonable amount of time. We needed to be working together, and that's what Paul's saying here is our, our, our heartbeat for the gospel should be that we're, we're in this battle together. We're fighting together. Nobody's a, a lone ranger in this. There's no mercenaries in the kingdom of God that have been called to go off on their own. We're we're called to be together as a church for the purpose of contending for the gospel, to not get distracted with other good intentions or other good activities, but, but to contend together for the gospel, to fight for the gospel. Is the gospel you believe worth contending for? Or is it so watered down by consumerism and materialism that it's hardly worth a fight? The gospel of Jesus Christ is a gospel that's rich because it's a gospel that's centered in Jesus, in his life. And we can contend together for that. Thirdly, as we think about the description of gospel worthy citizens, the first thing we said was they're united around the gospel second thing we said is they're contending together for the gospel. And then the third thing there is not intimidated by imp- opponents of the gospel. Not intimidated by opponents of the gospel. Look at verse 28. He says, not being frightened in any way by your opponents. This is a sign of destruction for them, but of your salvation, and this is from God. He says, you're living in such a way that, that you're not in fear or frightened... By your opponents. That, that word "frightened" is the idea of being skittish. It was used to refer to, to horses, to what happens when you, when you startle a horse. or, you know I mean, since we're talking about deer, it's deer season. I mean we, we, you know how easily a deer is scared away. just, just a, a sound, a smell can startle and they're gone. That, that's what he's talking about here is, I don't want you to be skittish about the gospel. When someone reacts negatively, when someone is harsh, when someone rejects you, we don't turn and run. We don't live in fear of what other people are going to say or how we'll be treated because we're Christians. He just anticipates that you're going to be treated poorly, by the way, as Christians. He just anticipates that. He's already talked about it by, by referring to his prison and, and, and his prison sentence and his, his persecution that he's receiving. And he says, I don't want you to live in a way that you're you're skittish. Don't be jumpy as a Christian. Don't be intimidated by opponents of the gospel. Don't let them freak you out. John Knox was a preacher in Scotland who showed remarkable courage and endured a great deal of opposition from the crown. During the reign of Bloody Mary in 1553 to 1558, She burned some 280 Christians, including some of Knox's friends. He was a small man with a weak constitution, but he had a burning desire to serve God. In view of his fearless ministry, one person said at his funeral, here lies one who never feared the face of man. What a beautiful phrase What a powerful way to be remembered. You won't fear the face of man if you fear God more than man. Jesus told his disciples in Matthew 10, 28, don't fear those who can kill the body, but are not able to kill the soul. Rather, fear him who's able to destroy both body and soul in hell. If you're a Christian, you've already been accepted by the one whose opinion really matters. You don't have to fear condemnation because Jesus has set you free. So what can a human do to you? Don't fear them. Your Father is with you. Live in that freedom of His acceptance and not in the fear of man. I love the words of Luther's A Mighty Fortress. The body they may kill. God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is is forever. My brothers and sisters, let's live fearlessly for the sake of Christ. And then the final thing we want to say this morning as we close is we see the grace for gospel-worthy citizens. The grace for gospel-worthy citizens. He says in verse 29, therefore, I'm sorry, I looked at the wrong chapter, "For, for it has been granted to you on Christ's behalf not only to believe in Him, but also to suffer for Him, since you're engaged in the same struggle that you saw I had and now hear that I have. Paul uses, uh, verse 29 is, is is a surprising verse because of Paul's language here. It says, For it has been granted to you, that word translated granted is the word grace. It's the verb for grace. So it's been graced to you. He says, as a grace gift of God, you've been given two things. He says, it's been granted to you to believe in Jesus. And for most of us, that may not be surprising. We would say, okay, God God has given us salvation as a free gift. Yes, I, I, I believe that God has granted for me to believe the gospel. And that's That's a a kindness of God that He opened up my eyes in my my sin and rebellion. He he awakened my heart to believe the gospel. But look at the second phrase. This is where it's surprising. It has been graced to you not only to believe, number one, but it has been graced to you to what? To suffer? Is part of God's grace? Do you understand what you're saying, Paul? That you're saying that suffering for the sake of the gospel is God's goodness in your life? We said this a few weeks ago, and we'll have to return to it because Paul returns to it several times because he knows that it's not intuitive for us. It certainly isn't for me. That when we get a chance to suffer for Jesus Christ, by, by being gospel citizens, living in a hostile world, he says, that's God's grace to you. Now, he's going to explain why later on in chapter 3 uh, uh, a little bit more of this. But I, I, can, I can just tell you this. That it allows us to know him more intimately. That, that suffering for the gospel allows us to be closer to him. To experience his tenderness and kindness in presence in ways that, that we, we would never feel if everything was fine all the time. We've said this before, but we have to remind ourselves because it's easy to forget. We, we need hardship so that we might cling to Jesus more closely. A life of ease and comfort tends to, to bring us to a place of self sufficiency and complacency, it's just human nature. And he says, in this case, it's God's grace in your life that you are allowed to go through suffering. Paul already explained what had happened through his suffering. The people were hearing the gospel. People in Caesar's household were getting saved. God was doing amazing things all through suffering. I love what Francis Chan says when he writes, our symbol for life and ministry is a cross. Not a recliner, not a flat screen, not first-class tickets on the airplane, not plush golf courses. You may have those things, and they may be enjoyed appropriately at times, but let's not forget that the call to follow Jesus is a call to follow Him down the Calvary Road. And Paul adds this, it's a gift to suffer for Him like that. My brothers and sisters were first and foremost citizens of heaven, and Paul calls the Philippians and he calls us to live as citizens who are worthy of this gospel, this death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, whose lives are aligned with that. Is that you and me this morning? Is that our church this morning? Do our lives line up with the gospel of Jesus Christ? We might be able to pull out an ID today and and say, look, I'm Here's my address. Here's where I live. There's a picture of me on this. It shows that I'm a citizen here of this state, of this country. But I wonder if we could pull out our lives today and if our lives would identify us as citizens of heaven, citizens worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, Lord, I pray that we would be so enamored with Jesus, that our lives would be absorbed and consumed with, with His. That, that we, would, we would have such a deep love for you, O oh God, that that comes from your love for us, that, that our lives would be Jesus centered. And so then the outflow would be that our, our priorities and in our, in our words and our actions, everything about us reflects a gospel priority. Life's worthy of our heavenly citizenship. We know that only comes through Jesus Christ, not through resolution to, to try harder, to follow the rules better, but through being in love with Jesus and having our lives so absorbed in Him that we can't help but proclaim the news. God, God, give us a fearlessness in the the face of opposition. Whatever that looks like in the coming years, it may only grow. And, And so God, just ready our hearts for that. To be prepared to to live and proclaim Christ in a hostile situation. And for our brothers and sisters around the world who are suffering for that gospel, Lord, strengthen them and renew them and give them boldness. Speak to our hearts today through your word. Convict us, O God, and change us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Now may the God of peace, who brought up from the dead our Lord Jesus Christ, the great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the everlasting covenant, equip you with everything good to do his will, working in us what is pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. If you need prayer for any reason, there'll be a few of us up front who would love to encourage you. God bless you this week as you serve him.